Section 6 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 4 The Administration of Justice. Part 1. Section 25 Necessity of the Administration of Justice a herd of wolves it has been said is quieter and more at one than so many men unless they all had one reason in them or have one power over them unfortunately they have not one reason in them each being moved by his own interests and passions therefore the other alternative is the sole resource for the cynical emphasis with which he insists upon this truth the name and reputation of the philosopher hobbes have suffered much yet his doctrine however hyperbolically expressed is true in substance man is by nature a fighting animal and force is the ultima ratio not of kings alone but of all mankind without a common power to keep them all in awe it is possible for men to cohere in any but the most primitive forms of society without it civilization is unattainable injustice is unchecked and triumphant and the life of man is as the author of leviathan tells us solitary poor nasty brutish and short however orderly a society may be and to whatever extent men may appear to obey the law of reason rather than that of force and to be bound together by the bonds of sympathy rather than by those of physical constraint the element of force is none the less present and operative it has become partly or wholly latent but it still exists a society in which the power of the state is never called into actual exercise marks not the disappearance of governmental control but the final triumph and supremacy of it it has been thought and said by men of optimistic temper that force as an instrument for the coercion of mankind is merely a temporary and provisional incident in the development of a perfect civilization we may well believe indeed that with the progress of civilization we shall see the gradual cessation of the actual exercise of force whether by way of administration of justice or by way of war to a large extent already in all orderly societies this element in the administration of justice has become merely latent it is now for the most part sufficient for the state to declare the rights and duties of its subjects without going beyond declaration to enforcement in like manner the future may see a similar destiny overtake that international litigation which now so often proceeds to the extremity of war the overwhelming power of the state or of the international society of states 
may be such as to render its mere existence a sufficient substitute for its exercise but this as already said would be the perfection not the disappearance of the rule of force the administration of justice by the state must be regarded as a permanent and essential element of civilization and as a device that admits of no substitute men being what they are their conflicting interests real or apparent draw them in diverse ways and their passions prompt them to the maintenance of these interests by all methods possible notably by that method of private force to which the public force is the only adequate reply the constraint of public opinion is a valuable and indeed indispensable supplement to that of law but an entirely insufficient substitute for it the relation between these two is one of mutual dependence if the administration of justice requires for its efficiency the support of a healthy national conscience that conscience is in its turn equally dependent on the protection of the law and the public force a coercive system based on public opinion alone no less than one based on force alone contains within itself elements of weakness that would be speedily fatal to efficiency and permanence the influence of the public censure is least felt by those who need it most the law of force is appointed as all law should be not for the just but for the unjust while the law of opinion is set rather for the former than for the latter and may be defied with a large measure of impunity by determined evildoers the rewards of successful iniquity are upon occasion very great so much so that any law which would prevail against it must have sterner sanctions at its back than any known to the public censure it is also to be observed that the influence of the national conscience unsupported by that of national force would be counteracted in any but the smallest and most homogeneous societies by the internal growth of smaller societies or associations possessing separate interests and separate antagonistic consciences of their own it is certain that a man cares more for the opinion of his friends and immediate associates than for that of all the world besides the censure of ten thousand may be outweighed by the approval of ten the honor of thieves finds its sanction and support in a law of professional opinion which is opposed to and prevails over that of national opinion the social sanction therefore is an efficient instrument only so far as it is associated with and supplemented by the concentrated and irresistible force of the incorporate community men being what they are each keen to see his own interest and passionate to follow it society can exist only under the shelter of the state and the law and justice of the state is a permanent and necessary condition of peace order and civilization section twenty six
Origin of the Administration of Justice The administration of justice is the modern and civilized substitute for the primitive practices of private vengeance and violent self-help. In the beginning, a man redressed his wrongs and avenged himself upon his enemies by his own hand, aided, if need be, by the hands of his friends and kinsmen. But at the present day, he is defended by the sword of the state. For the expression of this, and other elements involved in the establishment of political government, we may make use of the contrast familiar to the philosophy of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries between the civil state and the state of nature. This state of nature is now commonly rejected as one of the fictions which flourished in the era of the social contract, but such treatment is needlessly severe. The term certainly became associated with much false or exaggerated doctrine touching the golden age on the one hand, and the bellum omnium contra omnis of Hobbes on the other. But in itself it nevertheless affords a convenient mode for the expression of an undoubted truth. As long as there have been men, there had probably been some form of human society. The state of nature, therefore, is not the absence of society, but the absence of a society so organized on the basis of physical force as to constitute a state. Though human society is coeval with mankind, the rise of political society, properly so called, is an event in human history. One of the most important elements, then, in the transition from the natural to the civil state is the substitution of the force of the incorporate community for the force of individuals as the instrument of the redress and punishment of injuries. Private vengeance is transmuted into the administration of criminal justice, while civil justice takes the place of violent self-help. As Locke says, in the state of nature, the law of nature is alone in force and every man, in his own case, charged with the execution of it. In the civil state, on the other hand, the law of nature is supplemented by the civil law and the maintenance of the latter by the force of the organized community renders unnecessary and unpermissible the maintenance of the former by the forces of private men. The evils of the earlier system were too great and obvious to escape recognition even in the most primitive communities. Every man was constituted by a judge in his own cause, and might was made the sole measure of right. Nevertheless, the substitution was effected only with difficulty and by slow degrees. The turbulent spirits of early society did not readily abandon the liberty of fighting out their quarrels or submit with good grace to the arbitrament of the tribunals of the state. There is much evidence that the administration of justice was in the earlier stages of its development merely a choice of peaceable arbitration offered for the voluntary acceptance of the parties rather than a compulsory substitute for self-help and private war. 
only later with the gradual growth of the power of government did the state venture to suppress with the strong hand the ancient and barbarous system and to lay down the peremptory principle that all quarrels shall be brought for settlement to the courts of law all early codes show us traces of the hesitating and gradual method in which the voice and force of the state became the exclusive instruments of the declaration and enforcement of justice trial by battle which endured in the law of england until the beginning of the nineteenth century is doubtless a relic of the days when fighting was the approved method of settling a dispute and the right and power of the state went merely to the regulation not to the suppression of this right and duty of every man to help and guard himself by his own hand footnote in the year eighteen eighteen in a private prosecution for murder an appeal of murder the accused demanded to be tried by battle and the claim was allowed by the court of king's bench the prosecutor was not prepared to face the risks of this mode of litigation and the accused was discharged the case led to the abolition of appeals of felony and of trial by battle by the statute fifty nine george the third chapter forty six in footnote in later theory indeed this mode of trial was classed with the ordeal as judicium dei the judgment of heaven as to the merits of the case made manifest by the victory of the right but this explanation was an afterthought it was applied to public war as the litigation of nations no less than to the judicial duel and it is not the root of either practice among the laws of the saxon kings we find no absolute prohibition of private vengeance but merely its regulation and restriction in due measure and in fitting manner it was the right of every man to do for himself that which in modern times is done for him by the state as royal justice grows in strength however the law begins to speak in another tone and we see the establishment of the modern theory of the exclusive administration of justice by the tribunals of the state section twenty seven civil and criminal justice the administration of justice has been already defined as the maintenance of right within a political community by means of the physical force of the state it is the application by the state of the sanction of force to the rule of right we have now to notice that it is divisible into two parts which are distinguished as the administration of civil and that of criminal justice in applying the sanction of physical force to the rules of right the tribunals of the state may act in one or other of two different ways they may either enforce rights or punish wrongs in other words they may either compel a man to perform the duty which he owes or they may punish him for having failed to perform it hence the distinction between civil and criminal justice the former consists in the enforcement of rights the latter in the punishment of wrongs 
in a civil proceeding the plaintiff claims a right and the court secures it for him by putting pressure upon the defendant to that end as when one claims a debt that is due to him or the restoration of property wrongfully detained from him or damages payable to him by way of compensation for wrongful harm or the prevention of a threatened injury by way of injunction in a criminal proceeding on the other hand the prosecutor claims no right but accuses the defendant of a wrong he is not a claimant but an accuser the court makes no attempt to constrain the defendant to perform any duty or to respect any right it visits him instead with a penalty for the duty already disregarded and for the right already violated as where he is hanged for murder or imprisoned for theft both in civil and in criminal proceedings there is a wrong actual or threatened complained of for the law will not enforce a right except as against the person who has already violated it or who has at the least already shown an intention of doing so justice is administered only against wrongdoers in act or in intent yet the complaint is of an essentially different character in civil and in criminal cases in civil justice it amounts to a claim of right in criminal justice it amounts to merely an accusation of wrong civil justice is concerned primarily with the plaintiff and his rights criminal justice with the defendant and his offenses the former gives to the plaintiff the latter to the defendant that which he deserves a wrong regarded as the subject matter of civil proceedings is called a civil wrong one regarded as the subject matter of criminal proceedings is termed a criminal wrong or a crime the position of a person who has by actual or threatened wrongdoing exposed himself to legal proceedings is termed liability or responsibility and it is either civil or criminal according to the nature of the proceedings to which the wrongdoer is exposed the same act may be both a civil injury and a crime both forms of legal remedy being available reason demands that in general these two remedies shall be concurrent and not merely alternative if possible the law should not only compel men to perform their disregarded duties but should by means of punishment guard against the repetition of such wrongdoing in the future the thief should not only be compelled to restore his plunder but should also be imprisoned for having taken it lest he and others steal again to this duplication of remedies however there are numerous exceptions punishment is the sole resource in cases where enforcement is from the nature of things impossible and enforcement is the sole remedy in those cases in which it is itself a sufficient precautionary measure for the future 
not to speak of the defendant's liability for the costs of the proceedings the civil remedy of enforcement very commonly contains as we shall see later a penal element which is sufficient to render unnecessary or unjustifiable any cumulative criminal responsibility we have defined a criminal proceeding as one designed for the punishment of a wrong done by the defendant and a civil proceeding as one designed for the enforcement of a right vested in the plaintiff we have now to consider a very different explanation which has been widely accepted by many persons the distinction between crimes and civil injuries is identified with that between public and private wrongs by a public wrong is meant an offence committed against the state or the community at large and dealt with in a proceeding to which the state is itself a party a private wrong is one committed against a private person and dealt with at the suit of the individual so injured the thief is criminally prosecuted by the crown but the trespasser is civilly sued by him whose right he has violated criminal libel it is said is a public wrong and is dealt with as such at the suit of the crown civil libel is a private wrong and is dealt with accordingly by way of an action for damages by the person libeled blackstone's statement of this view may be taken as representative wrongs he says are divisible into two sorts or species private wrongs and public wrongs the former are an infringement or privation of the private or civil rights belonging to individuals considered as individuals and are thereupon frequently termed civil injuries the latter are a breach and violation of public rights and duties which affect the whole community considered as a community and are distinguished by the harsher appellation of crimes and misdemeanors but this explanation is insufficient in the first place all public wrongs are not crimes a refusal to pay taxes is an offence against the state and is dealt with at the suit of the state but it is a civil wrong for all that just as a refusal to repay money lent by a private person is a civil wrong the breach of a contract made with the state is no more a criminal offence than is the breach of a contract made with a subject an action by the state for the recovery of a debt or for damages or for the restoration of public property or for the enforcement of a public trust is purely civil although in each case the person injured and suing is the state itself conversely and in the second place all crimes are not public wrongs most of the very numerous offences that are now punishable on summary conviction may be prosecuted at the suit of a private person yet the proceedings are undoubtedly criminal none the less we must conclude therefore that the divisions between public and private wrongs and between crimes and civil injuries are not coincident but cross divisions public rights are 
often enforced and private wrongs are often punished the distinction between criminal and civil wrongs is based not on any difference in the nature of the right infringed but on a difference in the nature of the remedy applied the plausibility of the theory in question is chiefly attributable to a certain peculiarity in the historical development of the administration of justice where the criminal remedy of punishment is left in the hands of the individuals injured to be claimed or not as they think fit it invariably tends to degenerate into the civil remedy of pecuniary compensation men barter their barren rights of vengeance for the more substantial solatium of coin of the realm offenders find no difficulty in buying off the vengeance of those they have offended and a system of money payments by way of composition takes the place of a system of true punishments hence it is that in primitive codes true criminal law is almost unknown its place is taken by that portion of civil law which is concerned with pecuniary redress murder theft and violence are not crimes to be punished by loss of life limb or liberty but civil injuries to be paid for this is a well-recognized characteristic of the early law both of rome and england in the jewish law we notice an attempt to check this process of substitution and to maintain the law of homicide at least as truly criminal ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death but he shall be surely put to death such attempts however will be for the most part vain until the state takes upon itself the office of prosecutor and until offences worthy of punishment cease to be matters between private persons and become matters between the wrongdoer and the community at large only when the criminal has to answer for his deed to the state itself will true criminal law be successfully established and maintained thus at rome the more important forms of criminal justice pertained to the sovereign assemblies of the people while civil justice was done in the courts of the praetor and other magistrates so in england indictable crimes are in legal theory offences against the peace of our lord the king his crown and dignity it was only under the rule of royal justice that the true criminal law was superadded to the more primitive system of pecuniary compensation even at the present day for the protection of the law of crime it is necessary to prohibit as itself a crime the compounding of a felony and to prevent in courts of summary jurisdiction the settlement of criminal proceedings by the parties without the leave of the court itself such is the historical justification of the doctrine which identifies the distinction between civil injuries and crimes with that between public and private wrongs the considerations already adduced should be sufficient to satisfy us that the justification is inadequate section twenty eight the purposes of criminal justice 
deterrent punishment the ends of criminal justice are four in number and in respect of the purposes so served by it punishment may be distinguished as one deterrent two preventative three reformative and four retributive of these aspects the first is the essential and all-important one the others being merely accessory punishment is before all things deterrent and the chief end of the law of crime is to make the evildoer an example and a warning to all that are like-minded with him offenses are committed by reason of a conflict between the interests real or apparent of the wrongdoer and those of society at large punishment prevents offenses by destroying this conflict of interest to which they owe their origin by making all deeds which are injurious to others injurious also to the doers of them by making every offence in the words of locke an ill bargain to the offender men do injustice because they have no sufficient motive to seek justice which is the good of others rather than that of the doer of it the purpose of the criminal law is to supply by art the motives which are thus wanting in the nature of things section twenty nine preventive punishment punishment is in the second place preventive or disabling its primary and general purpose being to deter by fear its secondary and special purpose is wherever possible and expedient to prevent a repetition of wrongdoing by the disablement of the offender we hang murderers not merely that we may put into the hearts of others like them the fear of a like fate but for the same reason for which we kill snakes namely because it is better for us that they should be out of the world than in it a similar secondary purpose exists in such penalties as imprisonment exile and forfeiture of office section thirty reformative punishment punishment is in the third place reformative offences are committed through the influence of motives upon character may be prevented either by a change of motives or by a change of character punishment as deterrent acts in the former method punishment as reformative in the latter this curative or medicinal function is practically limited to a particular species of penalty namely imprisonment and even in this case pertains to the ideal rather than to the actual it would seem however that this aspect of the criminal law is destined to increasing prominence the new science of criminal anthropology would fain identify crime with disease and would willingly deliver the criminal out of the hands of the men of law into those of the men of medicine the feud between the two professions touching questions of insanity threatens to extend itself throughout the whole domain of crime it is plain that there is a necessary conflict between the deterrent and the reformative theories of punishment and that the system of criminal justice will vary 
in important respects according as the former or the latter principle prevails in it the purely reformative theory admits only such forms of punishment as are subservient to the education and discipline of the criminal and rejects all those which are profitable only as a deterrent or disabling death is in this view no fitting penalty we must cure our criminals not kill them flogging and other corporal inflictions are condemned as relics of barbarism by the advocates of the new doctrine such penalties are said to be degrading and brutalizing both to those who suffer and to those who inflict them and so fail in the central purpose of criminal justice imprisonment indeed as already indicated is the only important instrument available for the purpose of a purely reformative system even this however to be fitted for such a purpose requires alleviation to a degree quite inadmissible to the alternative system if criminals are sent to prison in order to be there transformed into good citizens by physical intellectual and moral training prisons must be turned into dwelling-places far too comfortable to serve as any effectual deterrent to those classes from which criminals are chiefly drawn a further illustration of the divergence between the deterrent and the reformative theories is supplied by the case of incorrigible offenders the most sanguine advocate of the curative treatment of criminals must admit that there are in the world men who are incurably bad men who by some vice of nature are even in their youth beyond the reach of reformative influences and with whom crime is not so much a bad habit as an ineradicable instinct what shall be done with these the only logical inference from the reformative theory is that they should be abandoned in despair as no fit subjects for penal discipline the deterrent and disabling theories on the other hand regard such offenders as being pre-eminently those with whom the criminal law is called upon to deal that they may be precluded from further mischief and at the same time serve as a warning to others they are justly deprived of their liberty and in extreme cases of life itself the application of the purely reformative theory therefore would lead to astonishing and inadmissible results the perfect system of criminal justice is based on neither the reformative nor the deterrent principle exclusively but is the result of a compromise between them in this compromise it is the deterrent principle which possesses predominant influence and its advocates who have the last word this is the primary and essential end of punishment and all others are merely secondary and accidental the present tendency to attribute exaggerated importance to the reformative element is a reaction against the former tendency to neglect it altogether and like most reactions it falls into the falsehood of extremes it is an important truth unduly neglected in times past that to a very large extent criminals are not normal and healthy human beings and that crime is in great measure the product 
of physical and mental abnormality and degeneracy. It has been too much the practice to deal with offenders on the assumption that they are ordinary types of humanity. Too much attention has been paid to the crime, and too little to the criminal. Yet we must be careful not to fall into the opposite extreme. If crime has become the monopoly of the abnormal and the degenerate, or even the mentally unsound, the fact must be ascribed to the selective influence of a system of criminal justice based on a sterner principle than that of reformation. The more efficient the coercive action of the state becomes, the more successful it is in restraining all normal human beings from the dangerous paths of crime, and the higher becomes the proportion of degeneracy among those who break the law. Even with our present imperfect methods, the proportion of insane persons among murderers is very high. But if the state could succeed in making it impossible to commit murder in a sound mind, without being indubitably hanged for it afterwards, murder would become, with scarcely an exception, limited to the insane. If, after the consummation had been reached, the opinion were advanced that, inasmuch as all murderers are insane, Murder is not a crime which needs to be suppressed by the strong arm of the penal law, and pertains to the sphere of medicine rather than to that of jurisprudence. The fallacy of the argument would be obvious. Were the state to act on any such principle, the proposition that all murderers are insane would very rapidly cease to be true. The same fallacy though in a less obvious form, is present in the more general argument, that since the proportion of disease and degeneracy among criminals is so great, the reformative function of punishment should prevail over, and in a great measure exclude, its deterrent and coercive functions. For it is chiefly through the permanent influence and operation of these latter functions, partly direct in producing a fear of evil-doing, partly indirect in establishing and maintaining those moral habits and sentiments which are possible only under the shelter of coercive law, that crime has become limited, in such measure as it has, to the degenerate, the abnormal, and the insane. Given an efficient penal system, crime is too poor a bargain to commend itself save in exceptional circumstances, to any except those who lack the self-control, the intelligence, the prudence, or the moral sentiments of the normal man. But apart from criminal law, in its sterner aspects, and apart from that positive morality which is largely the product of it, crime is a profitable industry which will flourish exceedingly, and be by no means left as a monopoly to the feebler and less efficient members of society. Although the general substitution of the reformative for the deterrent principle would lead to disaster, it may be argued that the substitution is possible and desirable in the special case of the abnormal and degenerate. Purely reformative treatment is now limited to the insane and the very young. Should it not be extended to include all those who fall into crime through their failure to attain to the standard of normal humanity, 
no such scheme however seems practicable in the first place it is not possible to draw any sharp line of distinction between the normal and the degenerate human being it is difficult enough in the only case of degeneracy now recognized by the law namely insanity but the difficulty would be a thousandfold increased had we to take into account every lapse from the average type the law is necessarily a rough and ready instrument and men must be content in general to be judged and dealt with by it on the basis of their common humanity and not on that of their special idiosyncrasies in the second place even in the case of those who are distinctly abnormal it does not appear except in the special instance of mental unsoundness that the purely deterrent influences of punishment are not effective and urgently required if a man is destitute of the affections and social instincts of humanity the judgment of common sense upon him is not that he should be treated more leniently than the normal evildoer not that society should cherish him in the hope of making him a good citizen but that by the rigor of penal discipline his fate should be made a terror and a warning to himself and others and in this matter sound science approves the judgment of common sense even in the case of the abnormal it is easier and more profitable to prevent crime by the fear of punishment than to procure by reformative treatment the repentance and amendment of the criminal it is needful then in view of modern theories and tendencies to insist on the primary importance of the deterrent element in criminal justice the reformative element must not be overlooked but neither must it be allowed to assume undue prominence to what extent it may be permitted in particular instances to overrule the requirements of a strictly deterrent theory is a question of time place and circumstance in the case of youthful criminals the chances of effective reformation are greater than that of adults and the rightful importance of the reformative principle is therefore greater also in orderly and law-abiding communities concessions may be safely made in the interests of reformation which in more turbulent societies would be fatal to the public welfare end of section six